Chapter 7. I kept going. I kept reaching for safety and security. I kept trying to take charge. I hounded the Columbus Catholic Diocese. When we found out that Father Jacobs had only been transferred to a different church in Canada and hadn't been removed from contact with parishioners or defrocked, we went to the media. Tim was interviewed for the local paper. In 2013, after Jacobs sexually molested a child at a parish in Vancouver, he was finally sentenced to two years probation and registered as a sex offender. He was never charged in Ohio. As we held the church to account through the mid-1990s, I worked on finishing my postgraduate studies and finally began to work as a Gestalt psychotherapist in a group private practice. I now know that screwed up people come in every socioeconomic description. It wasn't enough to get away from patients living in poverty because ability to pay didn't make a difference. When I was working with dysfunctional people, it all seemed like going back into hell for me. As I worked in private practice, I truly could not see myself being a therapist for the rest of my life. Not only did it remind me too much of my mom and my own trauma from childhood, but more often than not, therapists don't get to see the results of their work. I wanted results I could claim publicly. I felt impatient with the private, intimate space inherent in a therapy session. I felt smothered, and the work drained me, emotionally and energetically. I also didn't see a future where I could make enough money to feel safe. I would be tethered to the job, barely making ends meet, but never making a dent in our debts. So I quit. After three years, I turned my back on the career I thought I had wanted for so long. I started to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad around this time, in about 2000 or so. I picked it up at the library. Rich Dad was a juggernaut pop finance book that had been published three years earlier and would soon find its way to the New York Times bestseller list. At the time, and increasingly as the years went, Critics questioned the book's advice, to put it mildly. One real estate investor called it one of the dumbest financial advice books I have ever read. Another personal finance guru, Ramit Sethi, was only a little kinder, writing, I have grudging respect for this book, but every time someone raves about it, I usually just want to punch them in the face. I'm glad I didn't run into Sethi back in those days, because Rich Dad changed the way I thought and I raved about it to whoever would listen. As Sethi wrote elsewhere about the book, there are some really great points, like how rich people make money work for them and how everyone else works for money. That insight, finding ways to make money work for me, landed in the center of my life. I'd always chafed at the hours that Tim and I put in at our jobs and the low wages we got in return. Now I was reading a bestseller that articulated exactly how I'd felt for years. For another thing, the parable of the dads made rich dads stick. Robert Kiyosaki, the author, contrasted the way his dad thought about money with his probably made-up friend's dad's approach to money. The friend's dad had all the right ideas. The ideas could be boiled down to six easy lessons. And by the time I was done reading, I believed the only thing standing between me and my financial freedom was putting those six lessons to use. 
Kiyosaki's shadowy rich dad figure connected to an escape from fear and an embrace of freedom. It was a powerful myth I'd bought into over and over in my own life. Dad was the ticket to safety. It was the reason I longed for a dad back in Phoenix. The reason I clung for dear life to Tim's close family and to Tim himself. I talked to Tim about the book as I read and reread it. Uh-huh, he would say. He wasn't excited about it, which was not only completely unsurprising after more than 10 years of marriage, but his lack of interest didn't even register in my brain. The pattern was woven into the tapestry of our life. I don't know how I would have reacted if my enthusiasm had sparked something in Tim. He didn't have interests. Or rather, his interests were in keeping his job, going to his job, spending time with our kids and me, and doing what he wanted to do. It was when I was reading Rich Dad that I drove by a vacant storefront near our house. I remember going to Tim with my idea to open a toy store. I presented it to him. My eyes were shining as I told him what I was thinking. That storefront on Otterbein Avenue has been vacant for almost a year, and I feel like we could open a store there. Yeah, Tim said. I was thinking a toy store would be perfect in there. This town needs a toy store. Uh-huh, he said. Yeah, I said. I showed him a spreadsheet I'd whipped up earlier in the week, full of grossly inaccurate predictions about startup expenses and revenue projections pulled from my imagination. So we need money to do it. We need a small business loan, I said. I don't really think it's a good idea for us to go into debt to do this, he said. Well, let's see how it goes, I said brightly. Let's get the numbers, and then we can go from there. That was the last time Tim pushed back on the idea. With Tim, there was no conflict at all. I want to do whatever you want to do. I barreled ahead, sifting through an application for a small business administration loan. They needed a business plan and a budget. So I created them based on nothing more than what I could find in outdated library books. Needless to say, I was way off. They granted me $27,000. It was a huge loan to me, but it was not even close to being enough to open a retail store. I can't really believe they even granted me the loan, especially now that I run a successful business. Of course, now I say they granted me the loan, but at the time I framed the decision as one Tim and I made together. I didn't want to admit to myself that I had already made up my mind. I wanted this toy store. I wanted what I wanted, and I was going to make it happen. And I knew that Tim would not stand in my way. But I also knew that I didn't want to be the type of wife who railroaded her husband into decisions. So I needed to feel like he was making the decision too. I pretended to myself that I wanted his input and I wanted him to help me mull it over. And that's why both our names appeared on the SBA loan. Both our names appeared on the second mortgage on our house. Both our names appeared on the bankruptcy filing. Once we were in, Tim was in. He was supportive. He would get behind things even if he wished we hadn't gotten into them in the first place because they were about me and what I wanted. I didn't reciprocate. I didn't support him in the endeavors he really cared about. Then again, he didn't give me the opportunity. He didn't have any endeavors, 
He certainly never would have gotten in mind that he wanted to do something like start a business or take a big trip or go back to school and need my support in those big life pivots. He didn't ask for any of that a single time in all our 18 years of marriage. He didn't screw shit up and hurt people and grow from his mistakes. He didn't need that kind of partnership at all. But I did. I carried the weight of driving our life up a hill. I wanted to take us somewhere. What would life look like for us? How would it change? I made those decisions because no one was on the other side with his own ideas. It was a weight. It was a situation I was not helping. I know he was scared to push back because he thought I might get mad. He didn't feel safe. I know now that if I ask, what do you think about this? It's a serious question. I actually want to know what they think. I listen. There's discussion. And sometimes I change my mind as a result of what I learn from the discussion. But with Tim, my asking was a charade. I had already made up my mind. I pretended to listen. And if he challenged me, then I had a meltdown. Or worse, the silent treatment. So I take responsibility for my part in that. He needed a place that felt safe, and I wasn't safe. Then again, who gives a shit how safe it is? It was his life. He let me run it. By 2005, I had been holding myself together for a long time. I was 35. I'd been married for 15 years. I'd fought the Catholic Church, earned two degrees, quit a career in psychotherapy, opened a toy store a month before 9-11. I closed the store in 2003. My girls, 9 and 11, didn't need me the way small children do, and I found myself seeking again. I was still looking to do work that made a difference, and I got politically active. So much so that in 2006, I ran for Ohio State Senate. George W. Bush had been reelected in a landslide in 2004 after starting two devastating wars. I wanted to get involved with people who were trying to do something about what they saw was wrong with the world. I held a meeting at my house for Democrats who were dismayed by the Bush presidency. People were disillusioned like me. At the meeting, we talked about the lack of viable candidates to run against some of the most entrenched Republicans in Ohio state politics. I heard people say that no one was willing to take it on. How about you, a friend suggested after the meeting. I said no. Then I said yes, and we started to plan. At first, I decided to run for state house against an incumbent who'd been there forever. This was one of the seats where the leadership of each party, plus gerrymandering, determined the winner. I told myself that gerrymandering wasn't the problem, though. The real problem, as I saw it, was that the people who had run in the past hadn't talked to enough people. They hadn't been bold enough, hadn't worked hard enough and tried hard enough. I knew, or thought I knew, I could outwork them. A few weeks after my decision to run, state Democratic Party leadership asked me if I'd consider switching my race from the Ohio House to the Ohio Senate. I was flattered. I didn't understand at the time that the switch was part of a statewide strategy. 
If I ran against David Goodman in the third district Senate race, they knew that the state Republican Party would have to funnel more money than it wanted to our race in order to defeat me. My own party leadership also knew I was guaranteed to lose, but they didn't tell me that. I was excited. The Democratic Party conducted their first poll. I came out ahead, 51% to my opponent's 49%. Early buzz, I thought. The party leadership also decided to leak the poll results to the press to alert the opposition. The leak was a commonly used tactic meant to get the Republicans to start spending their money against me. Spending money on my race would divert their funds from the race in Cleveland, where the Democratic candidate had a much better chance of winning. I didn't know that at the time, though. All I knew was that the poll showed me ahead. It felt good. Did I sprout into full-blown alcoholism through the course of that exhausting year-long campaign? No. Maybe. Before the campaign, we didn't keep alcohol in the house. I may have had wine during the holidays, but when they were over, I went back to my routine and never gave alcohol a second thought. I never used alcohol or other drugs to cope. Never went to bars. At 35, I had never had a moment in my life when I cut loose or rebelled. I needed to survive as a teenager. I was uptight then, singularly focused on my life pinnacle goal of graduating high school and lining up a good job so I could move out of Clotine's grip. Then I married Tim at 19, and we spent the next few years scraping by. Then I became a mother. Then Tim revealed the abuse he'd suffered, and I worked for the next decade to save him, to save our semblance of a safe and normal family. When I was deciding whether to run for office, Chris Redfern, who was about to be elected chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, met with me. He asked me, do you drink? At the time, I remember thinking, that is a really strange question. Yeah, at parties and stuff like that, I answered truthfully. I'm not a big drinker. Well, if you do this, get ready to drink more, a lot more. What do you mean, I asked. You're just going to drink more. I've seen it happen, he replied. Soon after that, he concluded the meeting and gave his blessing to my campaign. I shrugged it off. Campaigning brought huge pressures with it, and I was not prepared for a single one of them. When I held my first press conference at the State House, I said something that didn't sit well with the Democratic caucus. I got the silent treatment. Any in-person meetings I had on the schedule were canceled. It wasn't that the other candidates were mad at me. They just didn't want to associate themselves with someone who went off script. And off script included directly stating what you were really thinking or what your real intentions were. If you let those thoughts and intentions out of the bag, so much the better for the other side who were just waiting to find out what you actually wanted to accomplish so they could use it against you before you even had the chance to begin. One of the state house aides gave me a three-ring binder full of lobbyist contact info. The aide told me to call each person in the book, schedule an in-person meeting with each, and ask for money. Great, I thought. Made sense to me. 
Here was a chance for me to show off my work ethic. I started at the top of the list and called every number. As I progressed through the list, I realized most of these people would never meet with me. Lobbyists had no interest in giving money to anyone but the incumbent. The aide had sent me on a wild goose chase. It was meant to get lobbyists to bring up my name and spur the Republican caucus to spend money against me. If I was talking to their donors, they might think I was a threat to their own fundraising efforts. Strategies like that I simply didn't understand. The Democratic caucus was focused on winning one campaign in Ohio, and it wasn't mine. Still, my campaign had potential. It gained steam, month after month, exactly like a train. Sometimes it went whether I wanted it to or not. As a candidate, I had to attend so many events, events for my campaign and a whirlwind of events for other candidates. These happy hours and parties were a way to rub shoulders and shake hands. Parades and daytime events happened too, but mostly these were after-work events held in the evening. The campaign exposed me to a world that I had never seen. For the first time in my life, I was meeting with powerful people, asking for large donations over lunch, being interviewed at press conferences at the State House, and leading more than 100 dedicated volunteers. My self-confidence grew out of the sheer repetition of putting myself out there. Besides the near-nightly campaign events, I was also meeting with people at bars at this thing called happy hour, which I had never been to before. I was meeting men who were nothing like my husband and who were interested in me and who were treating me differently from the way Tim did. Shrewd and astute men helped me devise my campaign, advised me on strategy, took me seriously, gave me campaign money. I inhabited a world where I was seen as Emily Kreider, not Tim Kreider's wife, not my kid's mom. I was Senate candidate Emily Kreider. From this new perch, I was looking down on the life I was expected to return to if I lost my race, and I knew I couldn't go back there. I was too busy to attend to that realization, though too busy with the campaign and events and happy hour. I never consciously thought about alcohol, but it was becoming an almost daily part of my life. I never allowed myself to think, I'm drinking more than I did six months ago, more than I did three months ago, more than I did last month. That lack of conscious attention made drinking dangerous for me at this time. I wasn't thinking about alcohol, but drinking served as a reliable, anxiety-reducing behavior month after month as the campaign unfolded. One of my first volunteers was my unofficial driver throughout the campaign. He was about 60, and he was a drinker. He'd even joked once or twice that he was an alcoholic, which didn't mean anything to me. I didn't even understand what alcoholism was. I thought an alcoholic was someone who laid in the gutter literally. I didn't understand alcoholism can develop in anybody who consumes alcohol with enough frequency and in large enough quantities to develop a physical and mental dependency, a need. I remember one night we were on our way to an event for Chris Redfern, the newly elected chair of state Democratic Party, who had asked me if I drank. On the way there, my volunteer driver and I were chatting about the campaign. 
Why don't we stop off on the way for a drink, he asked me. Great idea, I said. We'd done it before. Yep. I let him drive me after we'd both been drinking. If I thought about it at all, at the time, I told myself that he didn't seem drunk and that he had a higher tolerance to alcohol than me anyway. My driver was the first person with whom I'd ever sat at a bar for a drink. I was 36 years old. I remember how self-conscious I'd felt the first time we went, which was very early in the campaign. For all of Clotine's escapades, the fact remains I was raised to sit in church, not at bars. I didn't go to bars in college. Tim and I didn't do date nights. Even if we did, Tim wasn't in the habit of going to bars or even sitting at the bar in a restaurant. Whenever we would stop off for a quick drink, this volunteer always steered us to the bars of fancy restaurants. At the time, he impressed me as a gentleman. He chose the wine and he paid the tab with his company credit card. Even though I had just one power suit that I wore to everything, I was always well-dressed, my hair and makeup done. I felt put together and sexy which I hadn't felt in years. I was even wearing earrings. With all the drinks he paid for, he was probably interested in me. But if he was trying to seduce me, he failed. It wasn't him, but the culture of drinking that seduced me. I enjoyed the way I could relax into the back of the bar stool and be one person's center of attention while another person poured me a drink in a beautiful glass. I loved the lighting and the sound of conversation around me. I imagined other people in the restaurant knew who I was and watched me play things cool. I enjoyed it, and I craved more of that feeling. On this particular evening, my volunteer and I stopped off for a drink. Before I knew it, two and a half hours and three glasses of wine had gone by. I felt a little guilty, but I told myself these events were such a drag. I told myself I knew I was going to lose my race. Each event became a chore that also seemed totally meaningless. When we finally pulled into the parking lot for the event that night, Chris Redfern was leaving. I didn't want to get out of the car. I didn't want him to see me. I didn't want to see him. I felt shame, but the feeling was flooded by a sense of relief. I don't have to go, I told myself. I don't have to be there. I don't have to be anywhere. As if reading my mind, my driver asked, another drink? The campaign gave me an ironclad alibi to take home to my family each night as I looked for more opportunities to enjoy the happy hour experience. I was home less and less often, but it made perfect sense as the election neared. Tim and the kids knew why I wasn't there, or I thought they knew. I was doing something important. My kids struggled. They were in middle school. As the election loomed, my opponent poured more than $1 million into TV ads alone, and that doesn't count the money he spent on mailers. There were at least six different TV ads that continuously cycled throughout the day and night. I lost count of the full-color, glossy fold-out mailers. My face was everywhere. About eight weeks before election day, his campaign began running attack ads that made it sound like I was the incumbent candidate, and I had missed key votes as a sitting senator. He was the incumbent, yet he was virtually unknown. He had never needed to campaign for his seat in the Senate. 
he had never needed to connect with his constituents. In reality, the ad highlighted my voting record as a private citizen and the primary elections I had missed since I was 18 years old. The ads were sinister and misleading, which made their incredible effectiveness all the more infuriating. The mailers featured photos of crying children, crying senior citizens, and crying firefighters. If only I'd shown up to vote. Kids were teasing my daughters at school. Why didn't your mom vote, they'd screech, and I saw your mom on TV. Once they were in a Taco Bell with some classmates when an attack ad came on. There's your mom, one of the kids shouted. They couldn't even go to Taco Bell without my face coming up on TV. The attack ads were so craven, and I was devastated at how well it worked for my opponent. Together with my volunteers, we knocked on at least 5,000 doors over the months. And so many people I met asked me why I had missed so many key votes in the Senate. He's attacking my personal voting record, I told each one who asked. I'm not an elected official. I'm not the sitting senator. I would pause to let that sink in. Then the light bulb came on. Then the dismay at being hoodwinked. But it didn't matter. His message played 10, 20, 50 times a day in some households. I couldn't knock on enough doors. Volunteers asked me why I didn't run ads in response. You have to respond. You can't just let him say those things, they said. It takes money to create commercials and run ads on TV, I said, stating the obvious. It also takes more than the 50 and $100 donations that my campaign is built on. Winning required the big money donations that only incumbents get in this state. And I couldn't break that awful news to my supporters. I had to keep going. Every Saturday of the campaign, I met my volunteers in a parking lot with coffee and donuts. I gave them campaign flyers and literature, and we'd all go out. They were really committed. If you're willing to show up, people will show up, I learned. You just have to ask them. Not everyone will show up if you ask, of course, but some people are just looking for someone to take the lead. That experience had an effect on what I think is possible in my life, in the world. That experience taught me that taking the lead in life is not forcefully taking charge and trying to control everything, but actually just showing up and asking for help. But along with that lesson came so much bitterness. In the end, I lost, just as everyone had predicted. I earned 45.9% of the vote to my opponent's 54.1%. The state Democratic Party's strategy to force the Republicans to divert money from more competitive races to my race had certainly worked. His campaign had had to spend a total of $1.3 million to claw back those five percentage points from that first poll taken almost a year earlier. I always joke, I came in second, but the loss shredded me. I'd told myself for weeks before the election I was sure to lose. I'd prepared in every way, but I was still crushed. <laughs>